Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour. We studied verses 1, excuse me, verses 4 to 6 in the last few weeks, which outlined and presented to us the doctrine of God's choosing, election, sovereign grace, predestination. And that raises a lot of questions, and I'm very aware of that. And so I spoke with the elders in the last few weeks, and they have given me a little extra leash to pull the car over and to talk about this for a couple of weeks, I, I, I think a couple of weeks. I, I was a little nervous because I'm looking at my notes, and I've got them just sausage-linked off this morning, but there are 24 pages right here. And um, I think I got through 11 first hour, so I, I can't get any further than that with you, so at least I know where I'm going to stop. There are times as a pastor teacher when it's important to pump the brakes, slow down, gain some critical perspective. This week and next week is going to be that. And let me just give you a little heads up and head start. This is going to be more in the terms of a theological church history class than it is going to be a pure exposition, though we will be very much in the text But I think that's important. If you're going to be a mature Christian, you're going to have to have your arms around historical theology, which is a better way of understanding church history. How did theology work its way out in the history of the church to become clear, to become pronounced, to become corrective, and and give us guardrails? I think it's important that we have that. We're going to have to do that a little bit this morning. It's also important to be theological. And by that, I mean... The purest way to understand God's word is as he wrote it, which is verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, one after the other. But there is great, enduring, and very important value in doing what we call systematic theology. Systematic theology is taking the grandiose theologies and themes and theological topics in Scripture and looking at how they compare one to the other across the canon. And we'll need to do a little of that this morning. And that's important because we're talking about a subject that has been divisive over the course of church history. It's also been something that has been largely misunderstood and mispreached on, if I can just say it like that. Let's get our bearings by looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and see how we got here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, it's incredible, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In these verses, we're introduced to eternity past. We wade into the deep end of the pool. The doctrine of predestination, divine choice, sovereign grace, foreknowledge, election, has raised more passionate debate than probably any other theological nuance in in the entire scriptures. Some 200 years ago, William Wartburton wrote this. 
to mention it, the doctrine of predestination or election, to mention it before some is like shaking the proverbial red flag before an enraged bull. It arouses the fiercest passions of their nature and brings forth a torrent of abuse, defamation, and vilification. But because men have fought against it or because they hate it, or perhaps misunderstand it, is no reasonable or logical cause why we should turn the doctrine adrift or cast it behind our backs. The real question, the all-important question, is not how do men receive this doctrine, but is it true? End quote. I've come to believe that perhaps the most misunderstood theological term in our generation is the term Calvinism. I've been asked so many times, Rick, are you a Calvinist? Is Mission Road Calvinistic? And before I answer that question, I always ask, what do you mean when you ask that question? (laughs) Because there's a lot loaded into the question that they probably have in their expectation for the answer. What do you mean when you say Calvinist? Ask 10 people to define Calvinism and you'll get 13 answers or 17, or 116. However, I would not be surprised if all of their answers did not contain the words election, predestination, foreknowledge, and the sovereignty of God, sovereign grace, or all of the above. A little background. John Calvin, who's one of my historical heroes, is, was a French theologian born in 1509. He died in 1564, two months before his 55th birthday. He was a principal figure in the history of the Protestant Reformation, considered the Reformation's greatest thinker and theologian. His most influential years were spent in Geneva, uh, Switzerland, where he taught, pastored, preached, trained pastors, launched missionaries, and he wrote. Calvin's most influential and enduring work was a systematic theology called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I read that when I was in seminary over the course of two summers, And I was shocked by what I read because it wasn't classic Calvinism as I had been taught. It was a systematic theology. Many believe that tome, it's two volumes in my library, Calvin's Institutes, many believe that to be the greatest systematic theology ever written. And anything written since then is just a furtherance of his original systemizing of theology. I think few theologies have compared to this work. It's worth your effort to read and study. When Calvin does, though, get to the issue of predestination for which he's almost exclusively known, he provides wise warning and counsel to those who dive into this biblical subject. Listen to Calvin on what we call Calvinism. He writes, quote, First, Let them remember, those who are wading into the subject, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the very sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. For it is not right for a man unrestrainedly to search out the things that the Lord has willed to be hidden to himself. 
and to unfold from, earth, from eternity itself the sublimest wisdom which he would have us revere but not understand that though this should be, so, that though this is so, it should fill us with wonder, end quote. Calvin calls this a labyrinth that if you go in with your curiosity expecting to be satisfied and fulfilled, you're gonna get lost. He goes on to say, God has set forth by his word the secrets of his will that he has decided to reveal to us. These he decided to reveal insofar as he foresaw that they would concern us and benefit us. I love that. Calvin says what God has revealed is enough to give us concentrated satisfaction in him even if our mind's curiosity are not completely satisfied. And can I say this from the beginning? They won't be and they can't be. There are some theological truths that we have to look at and say, what a God. I'm delving into the infinite mind of God and my mind is finite and limited. So I want us to begin this morning and leading into next week with a plea for humility for all of us. Just a plea to be humble before God and his word. Humility before God as a sovereign creator and ruling king. The doctrine of his predestination is so sweet to me. It used to be such a consternation to me. And the more I, I grow, the more I see my life, the more I know myself, the more I see my heart. The fact that I'm saved is only attributable to his divine sovereign grace. And it's amazing to be saved. Humility before God's word and its clarity. I don't think you're going to find this subject difficult to understand, but difficult to accept. Humility before one another as we talk about and pray about these things. This is going to be the subject of a lot of care groups in the coming weeks, and that's okay, and it should be. And humility to hold on to theological tension and paradox. In other words, to believe that our God can resolve things that are apparent contradictions to us and to leave those things to the mystery of God and not to expect full understanding. I would say the same thing about the Trinity himself. You have to embrace mystery and not expect God's majesty to bow the knee to that really small real estate between our ears. God's sovereignty absolutely does not negate human responsibility. We are required to make our own decisions for which we are entirely responsible and we understand that God is absolutely sovereign over every molecule and every decision in this universe he's created. Listen to these words just for a moment that affirm God's sovereignty. Now, I'm gonna be moving quick. I would encourage you to write these down. Don't try to follow along. If you want to, just oil up the spine of your Bible, okay? Proverbs 21, verse one. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You know, I was just thinking about this watching the news last night. We get so fearful and, and, and we get our hearts up in a froth looking at things happening in Washington and in Kansas and in Missouri and in our local municipalities and we get, get all tied up and, and upset about that and anxious. Can I remind you that the king's heart, politician's heart, like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. Ephesians 1.11, we'll see this in a few weeks. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose 
who works all things, comprehensive, all things after the counsel of his desire, his will. Romans 9, 21. Does the potter have a right, the God himself, the creator, over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And listen to these verses about man's responsibility. John 3, 36. He who believes, there's faith, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He doesn't say, see if you're elect. Check if you're predestined. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with the angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Our responsibility has bearing on how God will treat us and see us. Revelation twenty two twelve. 12, similarly. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Human responsibility is real and it matters. Sometimes divine sovereignty and human responsibility are in the same context, sometimes in the same verse. Luke twenty two twenty two. For indeed, the Son of Man is going out as it has been determined by God but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. I have been, Jesus says, preordained to be betrayed and to go to the cross. But woe to the man, Judas, who's turning me in. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, same verse. Acts 2.23, you know this well, Peter's preaching. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan of God, foreknowledge of God, then he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So in that same verse, we see God's absolute predetermined plan for the execution of Jesus for the sins of those who would believe and also man, those, those ones who nailed him to a tree, absolutely responsible for what they had done. John 1, 12 but as many as received him, man's responsibility, you receive the gospel. To him who received him, God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe human responsibility in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It goes, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, back and forth in two verses. Now, to get our hands around this, I, I want to take you on a brief tour. Turn to John chapter 6. We need to do just a, just a little bit of Bible study here that I think will help us. These are important passages for, for a few reasons. First, they're from the lips of Jesus himself. And they're concentrated about salvation and they highlight God's sovereignty and man's responsibility almost like a ping pong match going back and forth. Hear this. Hear the tension. Hear the paradoxical nature of this and Jesus has no trouble holding these two ideas in tension verse 29 Jesus answered and said to them this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent we could probably just stop our sermon right there do you see that it is the work of God for believers to believe it is the responsibility of believers to have faith and believe, though. Do you see that? You hear both? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, oh, this is so rich. I'm the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That's an invitation. Is your soul hungry? Is your soul thirsty? Are you heavy laden? Run, come to me. It's an invitation not to see if you're elect. It's an invitation to bring your troubled heart to Jesus and find rest. Do you hear that open and free appeal? Verse 37, two verses later. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. This is for another sermon, another time. But the bride of Christ, believers are a gift from God the Father to the Son. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So, we said last week, how do you know if you're elect? You believe. So here, here Jesus actually says, everyone the Father gives me will come, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So the only ones who will come are those who are given by the Father, but you're all welcome to come. Hearing the tension? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose none, nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Promise of resurrection for the ones that the Father has given the Son. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, understands the Son, and what? And believes. And his Son will have eternal life. In the same verse, verse 40, absolute sovereignty of God, absolute invitation to believe. Verse 44, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Absolute sovereignty. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You see that? If you believe, you will be saved. Verse 51, I'm the living bread. Came down out of heaven. If anyone, not the elect, not the predestined, not the chosen, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is in my flesh. Open invitation to believe. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. God the Spirit is the one who opens. First Corinthians 2 talks about this very clearly. The Spirit of God is the one who opens the mind to understand. Verse 64, next verse. There are some of you who do not believe for Jesus, that's specifically Judas, by the way, because we know that, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. Then verse 65, the climax of the chapter. Jesus was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So I want you to see, bouncing back and forth, our divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, the headline from this sermon, this interaction, reminds me of what the headlines are today on this subject. Because look at verse 66. As a result of this, Jesus' discourse on 
divine sovereignty and salvation, human responsibility. As a result of this, many of his disciples, not the 12, the followers, the crowd, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Do you think we're the first people who've been upset about this, this doctrine? First people confused about this doctrine? The people who heard Jesus teach on it. Some said, no, no, no. I'm not a Calvinist. And they walked away. By the way, we're not Calvinist. We're with Calvin who are both, us and him, we're Paulinist. And Paul was Christological, so just for the record. If we're going to navigate God's word, we have to embrace this concept of holding in paradox divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Just like Spurgeon said, they are two rails of a, of a railroad track for which you can see disappear into the horizon and you see them parallel and not touching before you, but when you see them on the horizon, they come together and they come together in God, not in our fanciful understanding and imagination. Only God can harmonize what our minds see as contradictory. Logical incompatibilities to humans are not problematic to God's mind. In fact, there's a lot of them. Who's working out your salvation? You or God? Yes. J.I. Packer writes this. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught side by side in the Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text. We just saw that. Both are thus granted to us by the same divine authority. Both are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality and man's responsibility is a reality too. Anthony Hokema says this very helpfully. We must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. We can only do justice to biblical teaching if we affirm if, if we firmly hold on to both sides of the paradox. But since God is the creator and we are his creatures, God must have the priority. He's right. Hence, we must maintain that ultimately the decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. He's right. The balance of our salvation includes God's sovereignty and our responsibility. However, the greater weight of the seesaw lands on God's side. So if you desire to be biblical, as I know you do, you must be willing to embrace and assert seemingly opposite truths, truths that appear to contradict, hold them in tension, and if you feel that logical tension, you're in a good place. You're in a very good place. Much like we look at the Trinity, there has been much debate in recent years on understanding the Trinity, and I think so much of that is trying to undo the mystery of God. We need to let things like this be mysterious and not have God's theology and truth bow to our own understanding. Misunderstanding of these truths, by the way, can land you on one of each side of a ditch. Uh, first, you can be a hyper-Calvinist is what 
the technical term is called, which is just irresponsible. Well, God's sovereign. He'll save who wants to save. I don't have to evangelize. No one is going to go to hell because I don't evangelize them. If they're elect, they're going to make it, so I'm just going to stay in my lane and enjoy my life. And there are some hyper-Calvinists who think that way, and that is sinful and wrong and unbiblical. On the other side, though, you have Arminianism. We'll come back to that in a moment. Arminians believe that it is completely on the, uh, the shoulders of the one who would believe. And whether or not you go to heaven is all on you. And that is unbiblical as well. Listen, it's not going to be possible for our minds to wrap themselves around such concepts in a way that we are logically satisfied If you're honest with the text of God's word, you will affirm what he says by faith. Can I give you one more balancing text? Isaiah 55. This is a call to salvation. And listen to this. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. That is a real call. Man's responsibility to respond to that. Let the wicked forsake his way. There's man's moral responsibility. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, the hydrological cycle, making it bare and sprout, furnishing the seed and the sower and the bread to the eater. So, now listen to divine responsibility, divine sovereignty. So, God says, my word will not, which goes from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. You hear that? divine sovereignty and without succeeding in the matter of which I've sent it. So in really the great commission offer of the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, you have human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Now we need a little assistance from church history. Early in the 17th century, there was a theological, theological collision that occurred and we are still feeling its concussive force. A professor of theology at the Dutch University of Laban named Jacob Arminius began to deviate from the biblical doctrines of the Dutch church at the time, especially on justification and on election. The more orthodox Dutch uh, uh, Calvinist investigated Arminius and charged him with, are you ready for this? Pelagianism. When's the last time you charged someone of Pelagianism? Well, maybe you have, but you don't know it. It's an important theological term that you need to be familiar with. Pelagianism holds that Adam's original sin did not taint human nature. It only tainted Adam. Only himself. And humans have free will to achieve human perfection without divine grace. That's Pelagianism. One of the charges of Pelagianism uh, were, were... against Arminius came to the magistrates that was the original charge that he came up against in the Dutch church the degree by the way of, of Arminius's um, Pelagianism have been much debated I'm not going to get into that right now uh, but what came out from his charge of being a Pelagian 
was how much he differed from Calvinistic theology, which the Dutch church held at the time. Arminius denied, for example, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. He believed you could lose your salvation and would multiple times a day or a week or a month, but you could always come back. He questioned whether God's grace was necessary for one to come to faith. He believed that man had moral independence to choose God or the devil, heaven or hell, right or wrong, good or evil. He was an independent moral agent, autonomous. And he was very concerned that the Calvinistic doctrines that the church taught undermined God's goodness and mercy. Some of the same pushbacks that people have today. He went so far as to suggest that Calvinistic doctrines made God the author of sin. Well, this brought him up for charges. Before he was fully examined, though, he had an untimely death, unexpected death, but that didn't stop the debate. His followers became even more rabid on these issues than Arminius was. Consequently, they became what we call remonstrance because what they wrote was a remonstrance against Calvinism. And if you see this in your church history books, the remonstrance, those were the the Dutch Arminians that were pushing back against Calvinism. Their view of election was that God did not elect individuals. He elected a big group. And you may or may not be a part. You could be a part if you wanted to. You didn't have to be a part if you didn't didn't want to. So he believed in election but redefined it. Very important. He also denied perseverance of the saints, saying that God's gift of faith could be resisted by man and taken back by man from God. And finally, the Arminians, the followers of Jacob Arminius, affirmed that Christ died for the sins of every man, including those in hell. The atonement was unlimited in its application, unlimited in its in its scope. Well, the government then called them in for a trial. The Orthodox Calvinists, you might be interested to know, responded with seven points of refuting the Arminians. Seven. The government failed, though, in its attempts to bring the two sides together. Things grew quickly out of hand. Riots began to break out all over the Netherlands. And finally, a national conference was called which is called a synod, S-Y-N-O-D, in the city of Dort. So if you read about the synod of Dort, that's where this issue was settled. A way to, as a way to answer the remonstrance, the Arminians, who are critics of Calvinistic doctrine, you tracking with me? The canons of Dort landed on five primary declarations. And these five, five primary declarations became known not then but now as what many call the five points of Calvinism. Now, I'm going to talk about these for a brief moment. I'm going to give you the first one today, but let me just tell you this. These are not my favorite terms. Um, In fact, there are terms I prefer to these, but they were originally articulated like this. They first said in response to the Arminians, man is totally unable to save himself, which became total... Depravity, right. God's electing purpose was not conditioned by anything in man, which became known as unconditional election. Christ's atoning death was sufficient to save all men, but only efficient for the elect, 
That was called limited atonement. Not my favorite term, by the way. The gift of faith, sovereignly given by God's Holy Spirit, cannot be resisted by the elect. It was called irresistible grace. And not my favorite term as well. And those that are regenerated and justified will persevere in the faith till the end, which is called the perseverance of the saint. Now, cleverly, if you say total depravity starts with the letter, come on class, T. Unconditional election, U. Limited atonement, L. Irresistible grace, I. And perseverance of the saints, P. Put all together and you have tulip. And that's where it came from. But understand, these were, this was a reflex correction. These weren't five points that Calvin said, believe these five points. They were a point of correction in a debate. However, we should be aware of these five points, knowing that they don't give fullness to Calvin's theological genius. Think about this. This is a really interesting observation Jim Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce says this. Calvin is known for teaching about predestination. But a discussion of the doctrine does not appear until near the end of book three in his Systematic Theology Institutes. More than 900 pages into his theology before he gets to predestination. Is that surprising to those who are critical of Calvin? He doesn't even talk about it until page 900. That's two-thirds of the way through his volume, by the way. So, with that as a background, I want to dive into the beauty of these amazing God-exalting doctrines. Basically, we'll be unpacking Paul's statement to the Corinthians where he says, 1 Corinthians 131, by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at these five points, five theological pillars, and we're only going to get through the first one today. I had really hoped to get farther. Five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign salvation. Five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign salvation. Salvation, And I phrased it like that because both the um, counter-remonstrance, the Calvinist, and Paul himself talks about these wonderful doctrines in a way that should bring us comfort and joy and peace, security. Five doctrinal convictions that provide security in God's sovereign salvation. The first, and I like this term better than total depravity, is total inability. Total inability. This just speaks to man's fallen state, also known as total depravity, okay? Uh, The first doctrinal conviction goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam, Adam and Eve at the tree, in the garden, they disobeyed God. Adam sinned, and thus guilt was imputed to him, transferred to him. He was guilty before God. And this sin and guilt were also imputed or transmitted and transferred to all mankind, to Cain and Abel and everyone all the way down to you and me. 
God is so holy, God is so serious about sin that by Adam's single act of disobedience, he became morally polluted and stained every part of his being, his mind, his affections, his body, his will, and also stained all of ours as well. Paul informs us that by his sin, death entered the world and Adam's fellowship with God was broken. That's Romans chapter five. The guilt of sin, the corruption of sin, the inclination in our hearts to sin were transmitted to all Adam's offspring at the moment of conception. That's why David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. She didn't sin by by uh, producing uh, that little baby in sin from, from the very con- moment of conception. He, he was by nature a sinner. That's the point. Sin has been passed down from every generation, from Adam to the current day. Everyone, you, me, your precious babies and theirs, our parents and their grandparents, their parents and grandparents, everyone, everyone, possesses a perverse, sinful nature apart from God's grace. Our minds are darkened by sin, unable to respond to truth and unable to please God. It is a dark reality. Our hearts are defiled. We're unable to love and appreciate truth. Our bodies are dying progressing to physical death because of the fall. Our wills are dead, unable to choose God and his righteousness. Our moral compasses are broken. We have no ability to please God. It's so bad in our sinful, natural state that no one actually seeks God, not even one. Isaiah chapter one, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Isaiah 1, 4, offspring of evildoers, offspring of evildoers. See imputation there? Sons who act corruptly because their parents did. They have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken as you continue in your rebellion? Then he says this, the whole head is sick. The heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Romans 3, verse 18. Paul stitches together some psalms. Romans 3, verse 10 to 18. There's none righteous, not even one. None who understands God. Hear the comprehensive descriptions? None. None who understands. None who seeks for God. All, another comprehensive word, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throats throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul just says, sinful inclination from birth is universal, comprehensive. Everyone, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. How bad is it? We'll see it in a few studies. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter two, you were dead. You were dead. The fact that you were dead, you'll find out in verse four, you're alive. But in your previous 
salvation state. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the, prince of the, uh, the course of this world. Who we were and what we did according to the prince of the power of the air, satanically informed, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, the worldview of this, this present darkness. Among two, them too, we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. It's inside, it's outside, it's in our nature, it's everywhere. Indulging in the lust of the flesh and of the mind, it's our thinking, our very worldview. By nature, we were children of wrath even as the rest. That's pretty bad. If you don't have as your starting point in your theology about salvation how, how grave the, the situation is, how, how much we need, how bad we are, how dead is dead, if that's not your starting, starting point, there will be no need for a sovereign, gracious God in salvation because you're left to able choices and abilities. Do you have any real ongoing recurring contact and realization with how bad you really are. I think when you're biblical, you don't come to church for a bath in self-esteem. <laughs> you come to church to esteem the one who will cleanse us from ourselves. <laughs> Speaking of that condition, Paul summarizes it and outlines it in Romans 5 and he says while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly that's total inability total depravity for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while think about it freshly while we were yet Sinners in that state, helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies in verse 10. Christ died for us. Gospel means good news, and good news is not good news until we understand bad news. <laughs> We're the bad news. We are the bad news. You're the problem with you. I'm the problem with me. And God in his gracious mercy has created not just a plan to save us from ourselves. He sent his beloved, we saw last week. He sent his beloved, his own son, to pay for our sins. Oh, before we get to these next electing choice and definite atonement and overwhelming grace and enduring faith, before we get there, are you convinced of your total inability? 
If you are, then God is majestic in salvation. But if you're not, it's up to you. And I fear for your efforts because you're not gonna make the cut. What a God who in this state would die for the ungodly.